Love hearing my name. Thanks. Just turned it off. Want to keep track of the time. My mistake. If you're worshiping with us online, we're so happy that you're here. If you're here in person, we're also very happy that you're here and delighted to gather together on the second Sunday of Advent to worship our Lord. I'm going to do the scripture reading this morning, and it comes from Philippians 4, 10 to 24. Philippians 4, 10 to 24. This is the ending to Philippians. We're finishing up our sermon series in the book of Philippians. Then we'll have uh, a few standalone sermons, two part of the Advent time, and then two over uh, right after Christmas and New Year's. And then we'll start on the Sermon on the Mount series in the beginning of January. But this is the end of Philippians. And Paul is wrapping up his message to the Philippians and wants to close it out by rejoicing in the Lord for the Philippians' provision and financial gifts, which they sent to him by the hand of Epaphroditus, who we heard about at the very beginning of the letter. Some have called Paul's thanksgiving here a thankless thanks, a thankless thanks. Paul mentions his appreciation of their gift in verses 10, 14, and 18. However, he qualifies his thanks by mentioning in verses 11 to 13 that he really didn't actually need it, and in verse 17 that he did not seek it. Is Paul being ungrateful here? Is he offering a thankless thanks? He's not. Rather, even in the midst of expressing his gratitude and thanksgiving, he has a pastoral concern to teach his Philippian sisters and brothers the secret of joyful contentment. And so even as he's offering his gratitude to them, he doesn't want them to think that he's dependent on it, but he wants them to understand that they can be content in Jesus Christ. Let's read the passage and then we'll pray. Beginning in verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am seeking of be, speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in the giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied having received from Paphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to it, us through it this morning. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be present speaking to our hearts and through this message, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Wealthy newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst had an incredible art collection, world famous. The Hearst Mansion in Northern California is a testament to his insatiable desire for artistic treasures and excess. 
On one occasion, he learned of a rare artwork, greatly desirable, and he was determined to obtain it. He wanted it at all costs. He sent his agent off to search for and acquire this treasure. And after months of investigating, the agent came back and reported the good news. The treasure had been found. Even better, it wouldn't cost him a dime. Because you see, it was sitting in a box in his warehouse. He already owned it, and he had never opened the box. Hearst had an insatiable desire for more. It wasn't just art. When it came to lavish parties, political influence, a nation-spanning newspaper empire, his giant California mansion that was built to look like a castle and now is a state park, his extramarital affairs, and so much more, Hearst was insatiable with desire. Despite having so much, he was discontent unsatisfied. Orson Welles' famous first movie, Citizen Kane, is a fictional portrayal of Hearst's life. And this points to the reality that is present in all humans, an insatiable desire for more. We are like a black hole that just sucks in more and more and can be so dissatisfied. This is a problem in the human heart. We were made for a relationship with God, and because sin has severed us from that relationship, We are always dissatisfied when we place something in that ultimate position that we were created to fill with God alone. We were made to know God, but we take God's good gifts and try to make them satisfy an ultimate end, and they will not. As part of a global study on human emotions, Dr. Daniel Cordaro traveled the world to show different people groups, pictures of human facial expressions to learn how these cultures would describe these different emotions. The goal was to see whether or not there are universal, nonverbal facial expressions, which all people from all different cultural backgrounds can look at the picture, see the facial expression, and know what emotion is being described. And they found, for the most part, that universally people can see facial expressions and know the emotions. In remote Bhutan, Cordaro found that the Bhutanese people had a unique to him, description of the emotion contentment. He heard the word described and translated, and it means the knowledge of enough, to have enough, be enough, do enough. The Bhutanese went on to explain to Daniel that conceptually it means that right here, right now, everything is perfect as it is without meaning, without needing to do anything more. Everything is perfect right now as it is without needing to do anything more. Cordaro heard this, and he felt an empty disappointment because he had never felt that way. He'd never felt like everything was perfect exactly the way it was. And so he went back and he started to study contentment and how to cultivate this emotion. In another article I read written by him, he described several different methods to cultivate contentment. But is contentment merely something that we can cultivate through a five-step program? Check off this list and then you will be content. No, it's not. The Bhutanese description is good to have enough, be enough, do enough, to know that everything is perfect right now, but it's lacking a key component, our relationship with our creator, the one in whom we can find contentment. And so while I applaud Cordaro's aim and goal, I would rather suggest that God's word has the best solution for our discontent. And we see that in our passage today. In our passage, Paul, in the process of thanking the Philippians for their generosity and providing for his needs, tells them in verse 12 that he knows how to be brought low, and he knows how to abound 
In, every, in, in any and every circumstance, he has learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul has discovered the secret of contentment, regardless of if he has a lot or a little, regardless of if he's in desperate situations or abounding circumstances, he knows the secret of contentment. In the entire New Testament, this word secret is only used here. And it's a special word, very familiar to his Greek-speaking audience. It was a word used by many religions to talk about the secret mysteries unique to their own gods. Paul is saying here that Christianity alone has the secret mystery of human contentment. Christianity alone has that secret of joyful contentment. So he goes on in verse 13, he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. This isn't a snappy athletic motivator. You can't win that championship because Christ is with you. That's not what Paul wrote this verse for. He wrote it rather to remind them that in Jesus Christ alone, we have the strength to face all hardship, to face abundance, to face desperate need. In in Christ, we can have that strength. He goes on in verse 19 and 20 to affirm that his God, who is a father, will supply all of their needs according to the riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Our good father is a rich, bountiful provider. Paul's confidence and contentment comes from a twofold reality. First, that God is his heavenly father, and second, that that heavenly father is the one who sent his own son to die for his rebellious creatures. After all, in Romans 8, another place, Paul writes, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God the Father sent his own son, the second person of the Trinity, to die for us, how can we doubt that he will not provide everything we need, is what Paul is saying. So the idea we're going to meditate on today, that we're going to focus on today, is that we know who God is, so we can be content and generous. We know who God is, so we can be content and generous. We're going to unpack that through two points, being content and being generous, and they're both tied to God's character. We know that our God is a king and a savior and a father, and so we can be content. And we know that God will provide all of our needs. He's a provider, and so we can overflow in generosity. First, we see that God is our heavenly father, so we should be content in all situations and circumstances. See, contentment was actually a central ethical and philosophical concept in the broader Roman world as the time that Paul was writing this letter. Socrates and other Cynic and Stoic philosophers used the concept of contentment to describe the importance of individuals being sufficient in and of themselves. The goal was to have no needs outside of your own resources, to be dependent on no one, This was in the context of Greco-Roman relationships, which was about a patron and a client, where a patron would give things to a client, and the client would owe fealty and response and support to the patron. This lacked all true friendship, as the Bible would describe it. But Paul seeks to redefine terms here. Contentment is in God, the maker and provider. He is the one who will meet our needs. Friendship is based on mutual love. Friendship is not based on utility, not based on looking to use others or receive some benefit in response to helping someone. Paul wanted the Philippians to understand 
that the enjoyment of material abundance or comfortable circumstances is not the basis for contentment. Paul's contentment is firmly firmly rooted in who God is and what God has done for Paul. So one commentator says Paul's contentment in any and every situation flows out of his life in Christ. That's the foundation from which his contentment springs. It's in the reality that in Jesus Christ, he has been saved. His sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west, and he is a beloved child of God now. That is where his contentment rests. What else does our passage say about our God and his actions? We already looked at verse 13 where Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Who is the one who strengthens Paul? God the creator of the universe who spoke the stars to the smallest atoms into existence, the one who saw our sins and did not turn a blind eye but saved us, the sovereign king who sits on the throne and everything exists because he has said it will be and maintains this existence. He is the one who strengthens God. And it's not some distant, aloof God, but it's a loving father who cares for Paul, which is why in verse 19, Paul says, my God, a personal, intimate loving relationship is described here. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Again, that is mentioned there because he wants to remind them, he gave up Jesus for you. Jesus died in your place. His precious son, how will he not supply everything that we need? And in verse 20, we see him go on to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Again, he emphasizes the personal, intimate, fatherly relationship that he has. Our God is our creator. He is the sovereign king. He is, yes, our savior, the one who saved us from sin and death, but he is more than that. He is a provider and a father. He intimately sees all of our needs, from the physical to the emotional to the mental to the spiritual. He sees us in all detail. He doesn't just see us in black and white, but he sees us in high definition, better than that amazing for the high-definition TV that you have. He does not turn away in disgust knowing all of the details. He doesn't turn away in disgust, but rather he moves towards us in compassion, grace, love, salvation. So he gave his own son Jesus for us to save us. And if God the Father has given his own son for us to bring us back to himself, then how will he not meet every need that we have, the ones that we acknowledge out loud, the ones that are in our inner heart, and the ones that we won't even acknowledge to ourselves. He knows what you need. He will provide for you. And our contentment must rest upon these realities and these truths. It cannot rest upon the things of this world, other individuals, finances, abundance of possessions, success, a good job, achievements. The list could go on and on, These are all shifting sands that will disappoint us, that will suck us into the depths of inadequacy, discontent, a desire for more and more that will be unending, and disappointment. That's all that waits us if we place our hope and our trust and our contentment upon those things. Paul's rejoicing, which we've seen again and again is an important theme in Philippians, is not in the prosperous financial gift of the Philippians. He's not rejoicing because they sent him money. He's rejoicing in the Lord. Look at verse 10. He's rejoicing in the Lord and the fact that the Philippians giving the gift benefits them. The Philippians giving this gift benefits the Philippians. 
He's explaining that whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, Paul has learned the secret of being joyfully content. The secret is to focus on his relationship with Christ, the identity that he has as a blood-bought, beloved child of God. He does not focus on the fluctuating, chaotic circumstances of his life. And trust me, Paul had quite a bit of chaos in his life, way more than any of us. He doesn't look to other people, to success, to wealth, to other identity markers for approval and contentment. He focuses on his great, loving God, the king who made him and saved him, who has adopted him and calls him a beloved child. Max Lucado has a book series about these little wooden puppets called Wemmicks. The Wemmicks are talking, living wooden puppets made by Eli, the Wemmick maker. One day the Wemmicks are, uh, and the Wemmicks throughout the series, they do all these silly things, just like us. And one day the Wemmicks begin gathering these brightly colored boxes and balls. And in a very silly way, they start evaluating whether a Wemmick is a good Wemmick or a bad Wemmick based on how many boxes and balls they have and how colorful they are. One Wemmick named Punchinello has no boxes and balls. He has none. And he feels inadequate. He's tired of people looking at him as if he's a bad Wemmick. And so he begins to neglect all of his friendships He starts selling all of his possessions, including his house, to get a bunch of boxes and balls. And he begins to feel very proud, carrying around this armful of boxes and balls that tower up into the sky. And as he walks past individuals, they say, wow, look at Punchinello. He's such a good Wemmick. Do you see how much he has? Do you see how bright his boxes are and how bouncy his balls are? They think it's amazing. But despite having so much, The disagreements continue. The Wemmicks begin to come up with more and more elaborate ways to indicate who's the best Wemmick. If they can stack their boxes and balls the highest, that means they're the best Wemmick. If their boxes and balls can be on display for everyone to see, that means they're the best Wemmick. And the disagreements continue. And during this disagreement, Punchinello stumbles into Eli's house, carrying his boxes and balls. He stumbles in there because he didn't see where he was going. And Eli talks to him about the Wemmicks' discontent over the boxes and balls. He asked Punchinello if the Wemmicks look happy or look important as they strive for more boxes and balls, as they fight and disagree with one another. And Eli says, or Punchinello says, no, they don't look happy. They don't look important. Eli reminds Punchinello, because he's told him again and again, Punchinello, you're special because you're mine. You belong to me. You're special because I made you and I like the way I made you, and I like what I've given you. We're special because we belong to God. We have enough because God has given us what we need. This book about the Wemmicks reminds me of a quote by Jeremiah Burroughs where he says, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Listen to that again. It's the frame of spirit, the mindset, which freely submits and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. God is our father. God is our creator, our provider. We can freely submit and delight in every situation because we know that he is motivated towards us by his fatherly love. 
If we have believed in Christ, we belong to him because he's our savior and our father. We are his adopted, beloved children. We can trust his fatherly disposal in every condition, even when we don't understand, even when it seems so difficult, even when we can't understand why he's given us so little or such difficult situations. We can trust. Listen to amen. Listen to some of these Bible verses which reemphasize this because we need to hear it so often, just like the Wemmicks. Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Maybe a modern version would say, some trust in bank accounts in the stock market. They collapse and fall. It's kind of true. Sometimes the stock market collapses. Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God shows compassion to us if we have trusted in him and fear him as a father. And this isn't a terrified fear, but a reverent, awe-filled fear. Matthew 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and your, your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not of more value than they? Our Heavenly Father abundantly provides for His creation, and we are infinitely more precious than birds or the beasts. His Son Jesus died for us. That's how precious you are. Do you trust and believe these truths? Too often we doubt them. Too often I doubt them. Have you learned the secret of being content in both plenty and in want? In Ecclesiastes 7.14, he says, In the day of prosperity, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In both prosperity and in want, we need to be content in our God, who has provided for us and will save us. In fact, in many places, the Bible teaches us that it is actually better to be poor and godly than have wealth and be far away from God. It's better to be poor and godly than to have an abundance of wealth and be far from God. Let that sink in. In Proverbs 15, better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. In 1 Timothy, Timothy or Paul reminds Timothy, godliness with contentment is great gain. And he puts this right after he talks about how some people try to use godliness to get a great gain of wealth. He says, no. Godliness is the goal, and contentment will follow. What are the idols that you run to for contentment? We all run to things of this world. Maybe they're material, possessions, a full bank account, a successful and secure career. Maybe they're emotional, pleasure, alcohol, entertainment, another TV, another movie, another good book to help us forget what is going on. Maybe they're relational, a spouse, a child that you want to be a trophy a parent that you still rely on. Once we find our contentment in God and who he is and what he has done for us, that's when we can truly overflow in generosity. Dependence on God does not exclude our effort. Once we grasp God's grace, we will overflow into responsive action. That's why our second point is generous. We see that because of who God is, we can overflow in generosity. Paul knew who God was. He had an intimate relationship with him. He rejoiced in the riches of God's grace shown in Jesus Christ. 
And so Paul was incredibly generous in his time, his resources, his very life. In verse 10, Paul rejoiced greatly in the Lord because of the Philippians' generous gift, not because of the gift itself, but because of what it indicated about the Philippians. The word greatly is only used here in the entire New Testament, and it's a rare word used to emphasize his surpassing joy at what God has done in the Philippians' life through his ministry. They are coming to realize where contentment truly lies, which causes them to overflow in generosity. This is further shown in verse 17, where Paul says that he does not seek the gift for the gift itself, but he sought the gift for the fruit that increases to their credit. The fruit is the Philippians' ability to joyfully be content in every situation. The Philippian church was not a wealthy church like some others, like the Corinthian church, for instance. Verse 19, Paul reminds them that it is God who will meet all of his and their needs. His joy is in the Lord, not in the gift. The gift is a demonstration of the fruitful transformation of the Philippians' lives by the gospel. And that's why he rejoices. Paul's rejoicing in the Lord, Paul is rejoicing in the Lord because the Philippians' actions are a demonstration that they have taken his teachings to heart. They are demonstrating the earlier exhortations to selflessness. After all, back in Philippians 2, Paul said, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfishness or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And that's why Paul calls the gift from the Philippians a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's saying your gift is a pleasing aroma to God because he's, he's seeing Christ developed in you. Paul's aim in his explanation is to transform the typical Greco-Roman relationships of the time. As we looked at earlier, they were patron-client, they were about reciprocity. You give something and I get something in return. Paul's saying no. Relationships in the Christian community are about how both parties give and receive are mutually dependent on God. Both those who give and those who receive are mutually dependent on God because it's from God that all of our needs are met. And at the same time, we are used by God to meet others' needs. That's what it's about. As we find our contentment in God, we will overflow in generosity to others when we know that he has made us, saved us, loves us, and we have an everlasting relationship with him then we can overflow in generosity to others. In our time, our money, our relationships, our ability to forgive one another, and so much more. I could list so many practical examples from my own life. I can think of the time in high school when I was not a Christian, I was struggling with depression, and a college student from a local college involved with Young Life sacrificed generously his time, his resources, to spend time with this awkward high school kid, reading the book C.S. Lewis, taking me out, for meals, and God used him to bring me to know the Lord. I can think of friends in college who invested in me and helped me to grow in my relationship with God by their time, their gifts. I can think of an individual who's now in his 80s who helped pay for me to go to seminary well over half of what it cost. And when I thanked him with tears in his eyes, he said, no, thank you, Nathan for giving me the opportunity to give to the Lord in his kingdom. 
I can think of so many people, my parents, my spouse, my children at times, who are generous with me. And I know that each of you can think of instances as well. God uses us to overflow in generosity to one another. Our generosity should be an overflow of our trust in God's character and actions. Duty, obligation, people-pleasing will only motivate momentary, shallow generosity. As we rest secure in God's character as our creator, king, savior, and father, we realize that he will provide for all of our needs. We don't need to doubt that. This should result in an overflowing of generosity even when we feel like we don't have anything extra to give. As we are saved by faith in Jesus, we are called to become more like Jesus, which is why in 1 John 3, John says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What is John saying? He's saying, we know love by the amazing demonstration that Jesus died in our place, and we ought to also be like him, and we can be like him because we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. And so he goes on and says, if you see somebody in need and you close your heart to him, how can God's love dwell inside of you? God is our loving Father. He will meet all of our needs And so as a result, we should overflow in generosity when we see other people in need. Not in fear that if we're generous with somebody else, we will not have enough, but in confidence that he will provide for everything, even if we can't see or know how it's going to happen. What are some practical applications? We are called as Christians to generously give our tithes and our offerings to our church. That if you are here, and if you remember, is EP Church. Your tithes and offerings to our church are used in so many ways to in turn bless others through our worship service on Sunday morning, through the different ministries that go on, through things that are happening around Annapolis and around the world where the gospel is being taken out and proclaimed and people's lives are being transformed. So give generously to your church. You're called to give to other worthy endeavors Maybe it's something like Compassion International where you support on a monthly basis some child in a disaffected area. Maybe it's some other thing that's on your heart. If you're a parent or a grandparent, I would encourage you when you give to other worthy endeavors to do it with your children, to instill in their hearts a love of giving from a young age. Talk to them about the things you give to so that they understand it's something you take joy in doing and you do it with confidence that God will provide for all your needs. Be generous with your finances, your time, your heart. You just heard this morning from the welcome video, Amy Marshall, the pop-up pantry. There's a lot of need out there. And that's why, as a result, the pop-up pantry is going from having only met once a month to now meeting again twice a month, the second and fourth Thursday, this Thursday, December 9th and December 23rd. They need help. And it's a great opportunity to overflow with generosity. So please come out and help with that. We have these worship Advent videos that you could check out in the Friday email. I'd encourage you to reach out to a neighbor, a friend, a coworker, a family member who doesn't know God. To say, hey, this is a video that encouraged me. 
send them a text message, or better yet, invite them over for a meal and open your home in generosity to them. We have an ESL ministry that meets on Monday nights where people who are strangers to America and are not fluent in English are welcomed here, overflow in generosity by investing in their lives, helping them feel more comfortable here by learning English better. And then I'd really encourage you, if you are more mature in your faith, to look around you and find an individual who's new to EP or especially new to the Christian faith and just offer to get to know them, mentor them, disciple them. So many of you have probably benefited from times where somebody has done that in your life. We should in turn seek others out. As we celebrate this Advent season, we remember the most beautiful expression of who God is and what he has done. Our Savior, Jesus, coming into this world. God, the creator, became flesh for a purpose, with a reason, to save us from our sins. My family works through a daily Advent devotional called The King is Coming. This book unpacks the whole biblical story from Genesis to Jesus. The authors look at different biblical events and how they point to the reality of sin, but also the reality of our God's fatherly, loving compassion. A refrain echoes throughout the book. Every little two-page devotion ends with the refrain, God couldn't remain. Sin drove him away. So God's people began to hope and to pray, God, will you come back to stay? And that's what we celebrate at Advent, the beautiful reality that God did come back to stay. Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, despite our sin, despite our messiness, he came because we are his and he loves us. And if that reality is true, then what do we have to be discontent about? As we see who God is and what he has done, we should be filled with contentment and overflow with generosity. Today is a special day because we don't only celebrate Advent, we also get to celebrate the Lord's Supper, another beautiful demonstration where we can see with our eyes, taste with our mouth, what our Savior has done for us. The Lord's Supper should remind us of God's salvation, his provision of our utmost need, but it's not merely a reminder. It strengthens us through the Holy Spirit as we eat and drink it. During his earthly ministry, Christ instructed his followers to practice the Lord's Supper by eating the bread and drinking the cup in remembrance of him until he comes back. The Lord's Supper is a family meal. And so if you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have believed in him as your Savior by faith, then you are welcome to come eat and drink. If you are not a member of the family, then we are so glad that you are here. We would love to talk to you more about that but we would ask that you don't take the meal, but rather that you observe and ask questions later. We don't want you to do anything that's not genuine of who you are. I'm gonna invite the worship team to come forward this time while I pray. Pray along with me as we reflect on the Lord's Supper. Father God, we come before you this morning so incredibly grateful for how you are our King, our Savior, our Father. We can trust you and rely on you, Lord God. We know that you will supply all of our needs richly because you did not withhold your own son, Jesus, for us. And we see that demonstrated this morning in the Lord's Supper. You who are the Savior of the world, who came into this world, becoming human for us, fully God, fully man, without sin, and then going to the cross purposely 
to die in our place so the sins and wrongs we had done against you and against one another could be paid for and we could be restored to a right relationship with the Father. We thank you for that salvation. But we live here now, Lord, between your first and second coming, and we realize that we, those saved from sin, are still struggling through the realities of sin that's still in our lives. So this week, we have sinned against you and against others. Lord God, we confess that. We pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts right now. Help us to confess the errors we have fallen short. Not with guilt, but with godly sorrow, knowing that you have forgiven us and we are saved. We thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father God, that we are saved by your blood. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Lord Jesus, on the night.